when thinking about user research, remembering that person is a human, just like us, just like you, just like me. And they are trying to navigate their lives in a way that works for them. And so we can get really, really caught up with the user. And it's no, it's not just a user, it's a human being. If you think about that, you are more likely to have a, a genuine conversation with people and be more authentic with them. So I've spoken to people who were traveling because of funerals, and that was a really hard time for them. And I have had people who were shopping for something and it was such a stressful experience for them that it left them in tears. And so it's not about that. It's remembering that it's just not users using a product. It's human beings trying to navigate their life in a way that's good for them. And I think if you keep that in mind, you are more likely to be curious, empathetic, and really get to those deeper goals and motivations that they're having. Welcome to Product with Banash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Super excited today to be talking with my co-host, Roxanne. Hi, Roxanne. How's it going? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. We're super excited today to be speaking with Nikki, who's got quite a bit of a presence, I think, in the community. I've seen a lot of her content around and you saw some of her content recently, right? Sure. Actually, I was working on a presentation for a training for one of our clients. And I was talking about what of Nikki's quotes when you told me that we had the chance to get her on the show. So that's great. <laughs> Brilliant. Today, we're going to talk about user research, product discovery, basically in the context of starting this stuff in your companies from scratch. So I think a lot of people in the community have been asking us for content around how do you kickstart a discovery process in a company? How you kickstart a user research movement in a company? Get people aware of these methodologies and techniques. So I'm happy to have Nikki with us today. Hi, Nikki. Hi. How's it going? Good. Good. I'm doing well. Thanks. Why did you please tell us a little bit about you, what you've been doing lately? Just a little bit about your background, really. Yeah, of course. So I'm super excited to be here. So thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I'm Nikki, as introduced before. And I am a user researcher. Essentially, what I do is I specialize in generative user research. A topic we'll be discussing a lot today. And generative research, unfortunately, has many names, which I'm going to also try to clarify today. But I've been in the user research field now for about eight years. I've done both in-house work. I've done freelance work. And I'm currently in one of those times where I'm focused primarily on freelancing. And I also own my own company where I teach people how to do user research, which is like the most gratifying experience ever. So I feel very lucky to be able to do that. But yeah, as mentioned, we're going to try to demystify some of the concepts behind generative research, how to get that started. Even though I am a user researcher in trade and a lot of people who aren't user researchers want to kickstart this, I still know the feeling of trying to start these things from scratch. Like it's still right here and yeah. I've done it a lot of times. So really excited to chat about that. And yeah, I currently live on an island in the UK. Pretty cool. I can get to the beach in five minutes. So very happy with that. I was talking about this actually. You're not very far from most of us here in France. You're in the Channel Islands, right? Yes. It's good to, it's good to have people in the community that are not very far from us because I don't know, it just feels a little bit more real, especially these days. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely not a lot of re user researchers on Jersey. You can start your own, your own little club there. I guess we have loads of questions for you. And just to dive straight in, I know you've been doing some consulting work for a while now, right? So you've been talking about the work you've been doing for some of your clients. 
what are some of the key topics these companies are reaching out about? So when these clients, these companies are reaching out to you and asking you for help around user research, exploratory research, or generative research, we'll talk about these terms in a minute. What are some of the challenges and struggles they're faced with? Yeah, I actually just got off a call right before this podcast with somebody who was feeling just this way. So when companies engage with me, the questions that I get asked a lot are, how do we get started? How is it that we are supposed to take all of this information on Google that we're learning about, all these books that we're reading, all these articles that we're reading? How do we take these things and actually put them into practice, especially if we don't have a dedicated user researcher. So what happens if our designers are trying to do this? What happens if our product managers are trying to do this? Our devs even are trying to incorporate user research into this. Like, where is it that we should start? And there's a huge fear of doing it wrong, right? Because there's a lot out there on all the ways that you can mess up user research. And the problem with messing up something like user research is that it can lead to misinformed decisions, right? So if we do incorrect user research, let's say, and we find out something about our users, and then suddenly we're creating a feature or pivoting our product completely, but it wasn't done correctly, we could be making a very poor decision that leads our product and ultimately the company, because that's what we care about the most, into the ground. So there is a lot of fear and struggle about, okay, how do we do this and how do we do this correctly? So I would say that when people reach out to me, those are the things that they're most concerned about is help. How should we manage this? And this is definitely something we've heard a lot about as well. The way I like to put this is they kind of overestimate the skills or resources necessary to start research in their company and underestimate the impact it can have for them. So this always seeing this maybe as this like huge obstacle that is insurmountable. Um, and it's really good to, to hear from people like you where you can actually in these contexts, give them the necessary confidence really to kickstart this kind of movement in their company, right? Yeah. And I think there are two sides to this, right? So. I don't want to say that generative research, you can, after this call and conversation, you can go and be a generative research expert, right? So there is quite a lot of training. I bumbled through generative research as a dedicated user researcher where this was my job to learn how to do this properly. I did bumble through it. It was really difficult for me to understand what it is I was doing and how to properly do this. But I also don't want to make it seem like this mystical, magical dragon-like creature that's impossible to conquer because the entire point is that you're going out to have conversations with people who either use your product or might want to use your product, right? And you're just trying to learn what is it that makes them tick? What are the problems that they're having? What are the goals that they're trying to achieve? And then you're taking that information and trying to create a product, trying to create a feature, create an experience that aids them in that. So whereas I can spew all of the jargon and terminology, scientific background behind generative research, but it is ultimately about you being able to go out and have those conversations with people. And to be honest, as a field, there, there are sometimes you want to gate things. As a field, sometimes you want to gate things. But I truly believe that I don't think that user researchers will be out of a job anytime soon because there are a lot of people like they don't have the time to fully commit to it. And a lot of times we should be fully committing to it. So I think that it should be accessible for people to start doing to get that momentum built 
so that one day you can turn to your boss, your manager, whomever, and say, I think we need a user researcher. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And thank you, Nikki. Thank you for the first ones or on the research. Maybe to kickstart the discussion, we, you could share your own definition of what generative research is. And the question I have is that we commonly hear about generative research and product discoveries in many tech companies. Do you see any differences between these two processes? And if yes, which ones? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with the easy question, the definition. <laughs> For me, generative research, there's, there, I like to think about research in two buckets. We have generative research, and then we have evaluative research, right? So those, let's say those are the two buckets. You can get in between to hybrid research. That's what I'm important right now. Evaluative research, we can start there, is, as the name suggests, evaluating a product. So does this product work for users? Does the experience make sense? A common methodology in evaluative research is usability testing. Very common. So you're putting wireframes, prototypes, designs in front of a user, seeing if they can accomplish their tasks. Now. Generative research, aptly named, is about generating an understanding about your users. Product agnostic. Nobody cares about your product here. So this is taking a step back from your product and how your product fits in with these people and just understanding them within a given problem. For example, and a lot of people get tripped up on, on this particular part when I say product agnostic. It means, for example, I was working at a travel company, right? And a lot of times at product companies, we think that we are the sun and everybody revolves around us. So people like fit our product into their lives, right? But that's not the case because there are so many products. There are so many apps. Nobody needs to fit anything into their life. In fact, we should be trying to fit into other people's lives, right? And so that's what I mean by taking a step back and being product agnostic when we think about this. So for me, generative research means generating an understanding of your users as it relates to a problem space. So travel, how do they decide on travel plans? How do they decide on destination? Those broader questions that you need to understand about your users in order to know them as human beings. So that's the difference that I set forth when I talk through generative and evaluative research. And very quickly, generative research, product discovery, exploratory research, all of these things to be completely honest, I lump them all together. I'm sure there are nuances between them, but what we tend to make user research hard as it is with all the different naming conventions that mean one thing. So for the purpose of this, it's safe to say that all of these things are about discovery and generating ideas and exploring your users. So they all, to me, fit under the same umbrella. Right. Thank you. Brilliant. And I guess one of the things I also hear a lot from the community out there is when people are thinking about kickstarting this type of activity in their companies, they obviously want to avoid common mistakes that we've seen people do in other companies when trying to launch like similar initiatives. What are some of the things to avoid when maybe somebody is launching their very first discovery project in their company? Yeah, there are a few things. There are a few things that I did wrong. There are many things that I did wrong, but a few in particular that I've noticed. A lot of times what happens with any research project, but particularly generative research, is it comes from a business problem. So let's think about the pirate metrics, right? You got like acquisition, you have retention. And so you have very common, you have 
revenue-focused KPIs or revenue-focused goals. And so a lot of times they will come to me, let's say a colleague will come to me and say, hey, listen, on this search page for travel, people are searching, but nobody's buying tickets. Let's fix that. And it's okay, yes, for sure, behind you want to fix that, but can we pivot? Instead of being hyper-focused on this business problem, can we pivot it to something else that's more user-centric? And the way that you do that is you think about it from a user's perspective. Do users care that your company isn't making money? Probably not. Do users care that they're going onto your site to search and not buy tickets? Probably not, because you're either doing something wrong or they're finding another way to do something more efficiently. So instead, what we can do is we can pivot that to look at it from a more user-centric perspective of what are the pain points people are encountering on our website when they are searching? And what is it that they're, what are their goals when they're searching? And what are their pain points when they're searching? What are their needs when they're searching? And suddenly that turns from like something that we need to fix as a business to, hey, what can we learn about our users? So what is it that we can gain from our users then could help us fix that business problem? Because by all means, that business problem needs to be fixed, but we're not going to do it by focusing on the business problem. So I would say one of the biggest mistakes that I see and that I've done in the past is going in with that like specific business problem and business perspective. And then another mistake is going in thinking that you know what the answer will be or going in with the hope that a certain answer will come out. And that's and that can be really tough. And it's really hard to shed those biases. It's really hard to shed those assumptions. Something that I do before every generative research session is write down all my assumptions that I hold of that particular person or project to just get them out of my mind so that I can focus on that person as a person. Because oftentimes they're product-based assumptions as well, or they're really not nice assumptions about your users. I've seen that come up. And those two things, like you got to come at this from a user-centric perspective. And you got to really come at this from like an open-minded curiosity. You tell me anything that you need to, and I'm here to help you. It's even more complicated for people like product managers or product designers to take the step back because they are actively working on the solution. So they're heavily involved, right? It's like a lot of product managers say that the product is their baby. And if you think of it from that perspective, it can be hard to think about positioning yourself as somebody who's completely detached and unbiased and all of these things, right? But I guess there's some expectation around um, people putting themselves in a position where they are conscious of their biases first before they launch these activities so they do them in the right way. What are some strategies you've used in the past to interject research activities into a product development process that historically had no research involved at all? I think a lot of people can relate to this. Yeah, absolutely. So it's tough. There, um, there are ways to involve research throughout the product development phases and at different stages kind of interject different types. If we're talking about generative research, right, that's like the phase zero. It's we don't know anything and we're looking to gain more knowledge. But what I would say, and I know that this is a little bit different since we are talking about how important generative research is. But the first thing that I would say to do in terms of a strategy to, to put user research into the mix is start with evaluative research, start with usability testing. And the really cool thing about usability testing is sometimes when right, it can be unmoderated. And that is a great strategy to 
to put user research into a process that is no user research. So let's say that you have a fairly simple wireframe and you just need some feedback on this wireframe from users. So the cool thing about unmoderated usability tests is, hey, okay, let's set up this like small usability test. And what happens is users see it and they're guided through the test and they're responding to the test on their own. Without you, you're not there. You don't need to be a part of it. You don't need to be asking questions. You can type the questions and hope for the best because, you know, you always want to over-recruit for unmoderated testing because some people just sit there and don't respond. But that can run over the weekend without your support. And that means you could leave on a Friday having done this and recruit, let's say we recruit 30 users only because you do tend to get a lot of noise with unmoderated usability tests. You could even do 20, 25. And then on Monday, depending on your kind of participant panel and how niche you're looking for and how much budget you have to spend, you could have 25 responses that you get to go through. So small things like this, like unmoderated usability testing. You could also look at just like lean usability testing. So what do I mean by that? That means you take a prototype, you choose the particular segment you want to talk to. So let's take the travel example. I have a new prototype of my search page, right? And I want to talk to people who book like leisure flights. So for personal, not for business, not for anything else, just for leisure. So I, I choose five to seven people for leisure travel. And in, in the span of two weeks, you can talk to those five people and have results. So it's like doing those smaller projects first before you load up into these bigger generative research projects. And then my final plug is to start a rolling research program. This means continuous research. At Zalando, we, I want to say every four to five weeks, we had usability testing and two teams could be part of that usability test. So it was a 90 minute test and each team got 45 minutes. So setting up a regular cadence for, okay, we're going to talk to five people every five weeks for 90 minutes per person. And that we're going to cover these two topics and set that up in advance. That's a really great way to start to implement user research into the product development process, especially if you've never had it before. But really focus on the small things. Don't You don't need to go wild yet. Get it in there and start that momentum and then start building towards like the bigger projects. And the, I will say the great thing about generative research is it doesn't need to be aligned necessarily with like your sprint. Let's say you can take it out of that cadence and do it on top, like a layer on top. Do you feel stuck not knowing how to tackle a problem or you're looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use in your role as a product person. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching to their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, head to panache.io to get an idea of how we can help you level up today. Check out panache.io. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. Actually, we like to think about the user research process as a process like in a continuous way, like a bit in position with product-based research. So that's why I really love your program. Can you tell us a bit more about how it works? So you set up like a slot in the agenda every four to five weeks. And what is the framework? What is the process? How does it work? 
Yeah, sure. So I actually have, I'll send, I'll send a PDF that I that that might be helpful for people yep. to like really get this step-by-step process. Yeah. But yeah, essentially what you do is you choose a cadence and you say, okay, every five weeks, we went by calendar weeks. It was really easy. Calendar week one, calendar week six. We have, we have one week, so even better, one week to talk to five users. And what happened is some work had to obviously be done before that. Let's say we were doing calendar week one and two. So that's, it's a two week period. So in calendar week one, what we would do is we would have a kickoff, right? So we would talk to the team and we would say, okay, what are you trying to accomplish? And you would come up with a little mini research plan with your goals and the questions that you were going to ask. The prototype would have to be done by Thursday so that everybody could review it and feel comfortable. And then on Monday, you would do a dry run. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you would be talking to participants. So five participants within three days, it's not so bad. That's totally doable. You could even do seven if you wanted seven participants within that time. And then Friday, you have this whole debrief and synthesis session where you go over the results that you found. And that would just, you would copy and paste that every four, five you can do six weeks. It's it's an iterative process. It's a it's something that you decide with your team. Every four weeks might be too much. Move it to every six weeks. Is that too much? Is that too little? Like work work with it, and it might change every so often. But it's best to try and have a regular kind of cadence so that people can follow you. And then we had a sign up sheet where teams just signed up in advance. Cool. Thank you. And how do you pick up the subjects of the week? First question and second one, do you also involve other teams like local product, like marketing teams or tech teams in this framework? You can. It, it depends on who wants to be involved and who has the capacity to be involved. I'm going to answer the first one, this subject. So for this kind of rolling research program, it has to be relatively simple because you have only have 45 minutes with a participant. So you can't bring forth like a really complex 45-page prototype that they have to click through and give you feedback on. So I would say first off, when we told our teams about this, we, were, we said, okay, it needs to be a simple prototype that can be gone through in 30 minutes. So we have that buffer time, right? And then as well, recruitment. So if you think about it, it's one participant and two topics, right? So the recruitment has to be the same for both topics. So any kind of demographics, any kind of psychographics. So for instance, let's take Zalando kind of example. So if we were looking at like size and fit, so how people like think about size and fit, and we had a prototype for something like that. And then we had another prototype about the sales page, right? So we would need to make sure that the recruitment for both made sense. Is it female only for one of them? And do we want males and females for the other one? Or is it non-gender specific? Or is it different gender kind of that that we're looking for? So really thinking about that recruitment and how it has to be the same for both topics. And then again, teams would sign up with their topic. And for a while, we did like a QA where we were like, no, this topic doesn't make sense. Sorry. Okay, yes, this one does ahead of time. But people started to understand the topics that made sense for this and the topics that had to go outside because of their complexity or recruitment criteria. Great. And I assume that it's working as well for generative research. Like you take the example of evaluative research using like a prototype, but we can use like a like conversation, only conversation with the user as well. Yes. Yeah. And what I will say for generative research, if you want to do this for that kind of research, generally you only have one topic. 
instead of those two topics. So you're focused on one topic and you have a whole 60 minutes to 90 minutes with that person. And instead of five to seven people, you're looking upwards at 15, 12 to 15 people. For generative research, it's really, it's really because it's a high cognitive load. If you're like, tell me about like all the times that you're traveling. And then they tell you about all these things in 45 minutes. And then you like switch completely. And you're like, okay, tell me about like a terrible vacation time. It's a lot for users to have to switch mentally with that. So just keeping that in mind, if you're going forward with generative research. How do you handle the recruiting? And then how do you choose the few users you speak with? Is it different between B2B or B2C? Let me do the general recruitment issue and I'll dive into the, the next phase of segmentation in B2B versus B2C. So recruitment, how do I handle it? So I've had, I've been very lucky to be in very, several different positions where I have had to do the recruiting 100% myself. So what does that mean? Cold emailing, cold LinkedIn messaging. We don't really do cold calling anymore because I don't think anybody answers their phone. So for this, what you're doing is you're reaching out to users. Now, this is where B2B and B2C do get a little bit different. So I will touch on this briefly. If you're looking at B2C recruitment, you can use things like your marketing email to find users and reach out to them, like to get their email addresses and reach out to them. You can go on to forums, Facebook groups, places where your users would be and ask them for for what they think, whether they'd be willing to participate in research. So that's like the on your own mechanism. Now, this is a lot easier to do in the United States. If you're not from the United States, unfortunately, it's a lot harder because in the U.S., you can just get anybody's data anyhow and reach out to anybody because GDPR doesn't quite exist the same way there. Now, with GDPR compliance, obviously, you need to think about, okay, that's why I mentioned like the marketing email. So if you do have a CRM, like they, they've likely, the people on the, on there have likely said yes to a communication, which means that you can communicate with them. But forums still are a great place to go for some niche recruitment. I've been on Reddit. Reddit is a great recruitment tool. The people awesome. there are just asking for an opportunity to talk. Yes, right? <laughs> exactly. They're like, yes, let me share my thoughts in a different way. So I will say that's one way. Always try and incentivize when you can. That doesn't mean that you necessarily need to pay them money. You can offer them something like a discount to your product. You can offer a free month, whatever. You can offer a lottery. If you don't have a lot of budget for recruitment, you can offer, hey, if you do this, you might get this. You can also, something else that I've done is donating to charities. That's for a niche kind of participants. So doctors, I will pick a charity and I will say, and for this study, we're going to donate X amount of money to this charity. That would mean something to that particular participant. The other side of recruiting, which is great, is if you could just hire an agency. Honestly, there are so many. uh, If you think about what testing time is more EU-based, you have usertesting.com, user Zoom, you have, I can't, like, there are so many that it's so saturated that my brain can't even come up with more resources but for you. I guess it, it, it makes life easier, right? And then I guess there's also this thing where it adds a degree of detachment and freedom between you and whoever you're going you're gonna to speak with. If you've been recruiting the people, I guess you're not, you might not be as detached as if another company does it in your place, right? So I guess that's interesting also. How do you choose the few users you're going to speak with? Is it different between B2B or B2C? Yeah. So as I was saying with B2C, you can reach out to maybe like your email marketing list. You can reach out on forums. B2B, it gets a little bit more complicated. When I was doing B2B recruitment and I did not have an agency or a platform, my account managers 
were my salvation. So I went to my account managers and I asked them if I could speak to clients. So they put me in touch with clients. It took some time for them to gather trust. So for a while, I had to have them on the call as well. And then they realized that, oh, Nikki's not going to mess anything up. And they let me talk to clients more ad hoc and more regularly. I will say with B2B recruitment, start a participant panel. You can do that for BC too, but B2C generally is easier recruitment for B2B. Get people who are good at user research interviews. So participants who actually give you something that doesn't mean the participant that gave you all the right answers, but the participant that shares constructive criticism with you and note them down and put them on like a panel that you can continuously reach out to. Of course, you need their consent for this. And what you can do is you can offer, hey, if you're on this panel, you get cool things like early access to beta features, or you get like an inside look on our roadmap, or you get to give your input on your, our roadmap, or you get a swag bag every month or every quarter. I sent like little swag bags to some of our clients every quarter and just rotated that. And that was quite nice. So that's for the B2B versus B2C. And then how do you choose who's buying your product and who's paying the most? I hate to say it, but generally speaking, if you think about segmentation, there's, of course, demographics. So if you're recruiting five users, you don't want two of them to be from the United States and the Midwest, two of them to be from like Germany and two of them to be from Australia. I've gone over five now because I can't do math, but you get the picture. You don't want them scattered around the world demographically. Yep. As well as things like male versus female, or sorry, any gender that you're looking for, age group, like those are very important things to keep in mind. So trying to keep them a little bit more narrow. But really, if you're trying to think of, okay, we have markets in France, Germany, and Italy, and the UK, who should we be talking to? And it's, okay, who are your real users? Like, who are the people who are like logging on most? So if you think about Zalando, work spread out a bit and we have a few different markets. We focus on Germany because that's where we're getting the most sales from. Like we tend to get the most sales from that country. And so of course we'd fo focus on our German market. And so it's the same. You focus on the market that is providing you with the most sales because those are the people who are buying the most. And those are the people who you want to optimize for so that they continue to buy more. Now you could take the exact opposite approach and you could say, who are the users that are not buying at all? And are, can we fix something for them? It might be the case that you can. However, it might be the case that you can't because there might just be a complete disconnect from your product. So it's up to you. But I would say go with the people who are using your product the most. So when I was at a B2B company, I chose social media managers to focus on because they were at our product the most. And they were going to be the ones that would champion whether or not the product got renewed at that company. Yeah. So that kind of like thought process behind your user segmentation can help you narrow down who you should be talking to. Brilliant. I'm going to pick up another question and then I'll hand over to Roxanne, who's got a question for you. There's Ariel here who's asking on generative research, how would you select which users you'd like to speak to if the company or product is completely new? So nothing is new, unfortunately. <laughs> so I would say go with your competitors. So what is a competitive product? that people are using and who are those users. Talk to them because if you are going to be competing directly with a product, you then need to make sure that you're doing better than that competitive product. And, the, and so if you understand what your competitors, competitors' users are trying to accomplish, what their pain points are, especially with that product, you can then help to create a product that is better suited for them. So there is a such thing as competitive interviewing where you ask the, where you actually ask the participant 
that you're interviewing to walk you through the competitive product and tell you all the things that suck about it and all the things that are good about it so that you can understand what's going and what's not going well and where people's goals are getting tripped up. So where they're like, oh, I really wanted to accomplish this on this product, but I actually can't. And so that's a downfall. So I would say really go with your competitor's products. There is always a competitor. Trust me, like a pen and paper can be your competitor. So really think outside the box because there are a lot of ways that you can come up with competitors that could be really interesting to talk to people who use those. Thank you. Nikki, I would like us to play a small game now. So let's say that Axel and I are both like product managers or product designers in a company. We finally were in our first interviews with our users and we happen, we learned a lot about their struggles, their needs, but we need to know what happened next. Actually, I have the feeling that it's as scary as doing the first interview to go to the analysis phase, insight generation phase and decision making phase. Do you have any tips for that? Yes, absolutely. My first tip is to debrief after each interview. So the worst thing that I have ever done, and I did it quite a few times before I learned better, is to do seven interviews and then look back on all of it and go, oh, now I need to synthesize all of this. So what I implemented for myself as well as for my colleagues is a mini debrief session. Half an hour after the session, you download what it is that you learned and what it is that you want to take from the interview with a particular session. And so what that means is after you do seven sessions, you've done seven debriefs, which means the bigger synthesis session where you're bringing all of those debriefs together essentially is much less scary because you've already written down things that you need to write down. And now what you're doing is instead of looking at it because you were looking at it at one participant, two participant, three participant. Now what you're doing is you're saying, oh, participant one, three, five, and seven all said the same thing. That's interesting. That's a pattern. Let's move it over here because that's like what we should be focusing on. Are these debriefs of analysis or are they only debrief of what you heard during the interviews? Yep. So they're essentially a combo. So they are a debrief of what you heard in the in that particular session. But what you're doing is you are breaking it up into, okay, what are the key things that we heard during that session? What are kind of some of the goals or pain points that we heard during that session. And so then if you look at that on that participant level, as soon as you're done with the session, then when you go to that bigger synthesis to bring those things together, you have already thought about these things. Axel, actually, I can share my screen and show people yeah, what I am sure. thinking about. Okay. So if you see here, this is a Miro template that I created. You can find it on Miro. You could actually just copy and paste this template directly. I give I give some instructions here as well as an example to make it a little bit easier. But if you see here, these are the different debrief sessions. And this is assuming that we spoke to six participants, right? And so if we zoom in here, let's say we just talked to participant one. And what I've done is I break broke these into quadrants of key takeaways, surprises, pain points, and key quotes. Now, that doesn't need to be what you focus on. You could focus on different things. You could focus on needs instead of surprises. You could focus on goals instead of key takeaways. But what matters 
matters is what you're doing is you're just sitting down and you're saying, okay, for participant one, what are the key takeaways we had? What are the surprises? What are the pain points? And what are the key quotes? So this is like a really great way. It takes half an hour. I have a little agenda over here on how well, how long you should take on each of these. If you want to start a stick with the 30 minutes. And of course you have a little parking lot for things that don't quite. Do you recommend to do this day before individually or is it more a group work? Yeah, I love it when stakeholders come to my interview. So if stakeholders do come to my interviews, I also ask them to take part in the debrief as well. Ideally, I am doing this with, let's say, a designer and a product manager, even a dev, maybe multiple designers, maybe multiple product managers. So I will, I would say it's best done in a group. But if you are doing user research completely on your own, this is also just a great way for you to download after your session. And you can use this completely independently of any kind of like team activities. But as you will see here, you, you brainstorm on your own and then discuss them as well. So if you are in a group, you do you do some work on your own. So you do the divergent and then the convergent work. So you're brainstorming on your own and then you're converging together to discuss the Can it wait to try it? Yes. I will just say really quickly, just make a quick plug here for, this is like the larger synthesis session. So this is taking, as you saw, that was very participant-based. And now this bigger synthesis session is let's look across all the participants and pick out those patterns. So what I was saying before is imagine like participant two, three, and four all had the same key takeaway. Let's bring that together and create a cluster over here so that it will look like an affinity diagram more so where you're clustering the different patterns that you heard from the participants. And ultimately you want, I know this is, this is a very small example, but you'll see the clusters here. So you see these three participants said this, and then you have these three participants over here saying this, and I will say, in a, in a test of five or six people, if more than three people have said something, you can consider it a pattern. But then it's also up to you and your team, once you've identified all these patterns, to go ahead and start prioritizing that work. Thanks a lot for that. We'll share that to the template on Miroverse afterwards. What tools and methods are you using for sharing the information you learn in the studies, particularly so that it doesn't sit in a static handover document? Yeah, great question. Miro? is a great one. That is a really great way to, to like visually show people what the findings were. So that board that you saw is an easy way for stakeholders to go ahead and be like, okay, cool. This is, these are like the overarching findings. Let's jump off with these. And there, there are some other ways. So if you're going ahead and you're writing a report, let's take a really standard report. Just because you're writing a report does not mean you need to just write words. And this is where, this is where I learned really quickly why people weren't listening to my, to my presentations and my reports because I love writing and I would just write paragraphs about, oh, these cool findings and this cool thing happened because it's just like my thing. Nobody wants to sit through that presentation. Like I don't even want to sit through that presentation. Something that I would highly recommend is using mixed media. So use, use video clips. That's one of the most powerful methods that you can use is video clips. Bigger bonus, something else that I did is I hosted usability movie nights where I would clip together like a bunch of clips of from a usability test and I would print out a bingo. And on that bingo board, I would have all the pain points that people oh, encountered. That's, super, yeah. that's a great idea. <laughs> 
And we would play bingo of pain points. It was depressing, but it was fun. Pain point and bingo. I love it. Yeah. The pain point bingo. Yeah. I think I called it like struggle bus bingo at some point too. And it was fun. Like we, we had a great time and there's like a winner and there's a prize and it includes like coffee or something like lunch, whatever. You don't even need to go that far. What you can do instead is just take video clips and put them together and do like a reel almost a video clips of all the problems that people were having, like the main problems that participants were having. And that is like thousand times more powerful than writing what happened. And then I would also say another thing to really think about and consider is using charts. So for usability testing, instead of saying four people failed this task, instead have a chart app that shows the different participants and shows whether or not they failed or they succeeded in the task. If you're looking for looking this up, try Googling stoplight chart user research. So I think that would, that will bring you, bring you to a resource that could help you out because just trying to make these things more visual so that they're easy for, for stakeholders is really important. That's great. Thank you. I've been really curious about a bunch of things, actually. I love to get your point of view on some of this stuff. So if you're thinking about people, these people tend to be product people, right? In companies trying to launch discovery projects, but Sometimes they're also people from marketing or even from sales or enablement teams or sometimes customer success. What are three pieces of advice you'd give anyone attempting to launch their first discovery project in the company? Yeah. So my first piece of advice is to make sure that your like goals and research questions align with this particular methodology. So we don't want to have a goal where we say, okay, We're going to make sure that our product works and then apply generative research to that because it simply, it it won't, you won't get that outcome, right? So if you sit and have a conversation with somebody, you might, they might say, yes or no, your product works, but that's not going to give you a great depth of insight. Whereas like evaluative research, like we were talking about evaluating, evaluative research would help you with that. So you want to make sure that your goals and research questions really align with this particular method. And that what you want, what is it that you want from this to get clear? What information do you want from people? And does that align with having conversations with, right? So again, if you want anything product-based, really like a walkthrough would be better or a usability test would be better suited for this. So I would say like really think about your goals and research questions, especially if you're coming at it from a business perspective. The second piece of advice would be to be open and curious. So a lot of people ask me, like, can I learn to be a user researcher? Are there like inherent skills or like personality traits that I need to be a user researcher? And I would say as long as you're a curious and empathetic person, you'll be fine. You will make it. You will be okay. Really thinking again about taking a step back from either your designs or taking a step back from your product child. Because like ultimately speaking, your goal No matter who you are in a company, your goal is to help that company succeed. And I know that it might suck to hear that your ideas, your particular idea is not aligned with what users would want, but it's better for you to know that and move forward with a better idea that's more aligned with what users need, thus making the company succeed. So I used to be a designer. Putting my ideas in front of people made me cry. Like I did not want to do it. And I had to learn like to take the ego out there and say, ultimately, it's about this company 
succeeding. And I need to focus on that rather than my ideas. And then finally, ask open-ended questions and just have conversations. We think that things are so difficult. And sometimes it, it is hard to, to be a neutral, unbiased, perfect balance between not too much energy and too much energy yeah. and like a good facilitator. But it's all about having a conversation with people and like genuinely caring what they have to say. And that makes it easier to follow up on them. So if you're actively listening to somebody, you're not going to say, you're not thinking about the next question in your mind. Yeah. You're listening to them. And then what's going to happen is you're going to ask a question based on that. So if you were to meet somebody at like a networking event, let's say, you don't really, maybe some people have a list of questions that they're ready to ask people. But generally speaking, when you're just having a conversation or with just the friend, you don't really have a list of questions that you want to ask them. The conversation just goes, hey, how are you? And then it goes off that and they say something and you're like, oh, interesting. Like, how is that? A, how is the concert for you? Oh, great. You, what do you think about this and that? And so like, you, it's that vibe. It's just that yeah. vibe of listening to somebody, caring what they have to say, and then asking them questions based on that. Mickey, I know that you have tips to share about the questions. Yeah, can you share with the audience maybe? Yes, of course. So as you can see here, I came up with two different areas to focus on. So you have your generative research goals. So those are the goals that I was talking about before, where it's make sure that your goals align with generative research. So you'll see like these evaluative research keywords are more about observing, evaluating, whereas these generative research keywords are about uncovering, discovering, understanding. So these are some sample goals that you could use for your next generative research project. If we go back to the travel example again, we can just put in here, learn about people's current pain points, frustrations, and barriers about how they make travel decisions and how they would improve that process or that experience for themselves. Same thing like right here, discover people's current processes, decision-making about travel, and then understanding what decision-making with travel means to people and why it's important to them. So these are great jumping off points for you to use for your next generative research study, because this means that you are focused on something that can be with the outcome of generative research can be helpful for you. I say have three goals per project. You don't need to have all of a million goals because that's going to be hard to answer all of them. But these are things like that you can say, okay, I want to learn more about people's current pain points and frustrations when they're making decisions to travel somewhere. Okay, if I need to do that, then what questions do I need to ask them to get an answer to that goal? So a lot of people, you can call this generative research questions. They're different from the interview questions, but you can call this questions as well or goals. But it's the things that you want to know more about and the things that you hope to be able to say, I know more about this at the end of your research project. So how that actually helps is that you can take your different goals or objectives and then you have one research question, two research questions, three research questions underneath them. If we have here, learn about people's current pain points, frustrations, and barriers about making a travel decision as your first objective, one of the research questions that you can start with could be about, tell me about the last time you had a difficult experience when making a decision to travel. And the reason that I said, tell me about is based on this Ted W framework. So when you're creating re these research questions, you can use this framework and this framework. I don't want to say guarantees, but 
helps ensure that you are asking these open-ended questions. So the worst thing that we can do, what I was saying to avoid, is go in with all these assumptions and these biases and lead the participant down a certain path. So what TEDW does is it helps you ask for open-ended questions. It's almost like a forcing function. So tell me more about the last time you traveled. What was that experience like? Or at a time that was difficult when you were traveling, what happened? So as you can see, like when I'm asking these types of questions, I am really getting at a really more open end phrasing that will enable people to tell me stories and enable people to open up about what they actually experienced rather than a path I'm trying to lead them down. So what I would recommend is like taking a look at these goals and then creating questions based on your goals using this TEDW framework. And it will really help you in any time you're sitting there. Oh, what's my next question? What's my next question? If you remember tell TEDW, let's say somebody was like, oh, it was a really frustrating experience. What you can do is you can say, okay, explain what you mean by frustrating. So you can use these as a catch too, to just put them in front of a word that you want to learn more about. So they're just a really good way to catch yourself. And I also have a user research plan template that you can use to fill in all of these like research goals and your questions, and it guides you through that process. So I'm happy to share that as well. Thank you so much, Nikki. Amazing. Thank you so much. Our last question would be, what is the top one habits that you have adopted and that has significantly changed the way you were today as a user researcher and for the best? Yeah, I would say when doing user research or when thinking about user research, remembering that person is a human, just like us, just like you, just like me. And they are trying to navigate their lives in a way that works for them. And so we can get really, really caught up with the user. And it's, no, it's not just a user, it's a human being. And I think that if you think about that, you are more likely to have a, a genuine conversation with people and be more authentic with them. So for instance, like people used to say to me, oh, you just, you just research travel or you just research clothes. And it's no, these humans are like making big decisions. Like I, I've spoken to people who were traveling because of funerals and that was like a really hard time for them. And I have had people who, were shopping for something. It was such a stressful experience for them that it left them like in tears. And so it's not about that. It's remembering that it's just not users using a product. It's human beings trying to navigate their life in a way that's good for them. And I think if you keep that in mind, you are more likely to be curious, empathetic, and really get to those deeper goals and motivations that they're having. Thank you, Nikki. That's really interesting. Yeah, I like this idea. I think there's a lot about empathy and how you extract to the stories from these human beings you're talking to, right? I think that there's something really interesting there. Nikki, thank you so much for doing this and for this hour we spent together. It was super insightful. If people want to reach out to you, Nikki, can they do that through LinkedIn? Is that okay? Yeah, LinkedIn, LinkedIn is the best way. And yeah, thank you again so much. Thank all you. Right. It was wonderful. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.